everyone. Welcome to Backstory Sessions. I'm your host, Matt. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome you to this episode of Backstory Sessions. I'm joined today by my co-host, Matt. Hey, Matt. Hey, Kat. Hey, everyone. How are you? Exciting episode today. Cryptocurrency. Yeah. Should be uh, should be pretty interesting. Um, do you own any cryptocurrency? Yeah, you know, I really feel like this is a field guide for cryptocurrency. So I was glad when uh, I saw that uh, documentary because um, I don't really know very much about cryptocurrency. Uh, I, okay. I feel like, you know, if there was a book like, and maybe there is, uh, I just don't have it yet. Dummy, you know, cryptocurrency for dummies or something. <laughs> um, that would be like the level that I'm on. So I what, see. Uh, you know, what level would you, you're probably a little bit higher, you know. Well, I mean, I, I know a little bit about it, but uh, not enough to be dangerous for sure. Well, that's good. Um, we've had enough danger for the day. <laughs> <laughs> Don't need any more. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah but, um, you know, I, I, one thing I do find fascinating is that um, Darcy Weir, that's our guest, he is... Uh, he makes documentaries, so he directs these. And um, besides the cryptocurrency, he has directed several other um, documentaries. And, you know, those are like over a wide range of topics. Um, Sasquatch, uh, UFOs, uh, aliens, you know, a lot of different things. Yeah, cool. And, um you know, again, I don't have any personal experience with any of those, but um, we did ask in our group, and you know, several people had either had an encounter or uh, believed um, that those are real things, that you know, real sightings. With, so, like, um, with like aliens, that I didn't see that post. Uh, yeah, I think the uh, of those things that were listed, like um, it was only crop circles and vampires, I believe, were the two that no one uh, believed in. Uh, but the rest, um, you know, people were open-minded to the fact that they could exist. Uh, so, I'm on the fence. Um, you know, I, don't really, <laughs> I just don't really know. Crop circles and vampires didn't make the cut. They did not, but, you know, I, I love crop circles, like, I think they're so cool, like, even if somebody's, like, out there doing it just to, like, make people think that they're real, I mean, I like them, I think they're artistic and really cool. Hmm, they are interesting, for sure. I'm not gonna go out in the night and start making one now, I mean, it seems like a way, it's like a lot of effort for nothing, but... Well, you get, you know, you get in the paper, I guess, right? Or the, on TV or something. Maybe not you personally, but like whatever your artwork is. Yes, that is true. And also, I think it'd probably be a good way to get some exercise in. I mean, <laughs> Dr. Cheryl didn't mention it, but... That's know. true, yeah. 
Dr. Cat here is just, you know, saying I think it could work. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I am. Before we go on, I do have to say hello to our German speaking friends. Hmm. Okay. They're, so, yeah. I know. Hello. <laughs> hello, Matt. <laughs> hello. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I know there are, uh, you know, some people in Germany and uh, people who speak German who do listen to the podcast. and uh, Yes, and now they're going to know that, you know, I speak their language. All right. And well, we... you know, I have to say that up till now, your, you know, your weekly hellos have been pretty easy. I think you're focusing on the very, like, really easy ones. I think you should switch it up and something that isn't so I mean you you can't put labels on hello <laughs> true <laughs> uh, you know hello in any language is like beautiful so that's all I'm saying okay well you got a point but I'm just saying you know maybe you ought to pick something in like Swahili or something well you know maybe you'll teach me one of those and then I'll I'll say it. <clears throat> well, I am, you know. We can both I, say it. How's that? What's that? We can both say it next week. Okay. I mean, if you want to do one and I'll do one or something like that. No, you teach me a difficult one. Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> That's a whole week <laughs> to work with me here. To... Okay. Well, I'll pick one. I mean, All right. I know a little Russian, so maybe we'll do that. Yes, let's, let's make a deal. We'll do Russia next. Russian next week. All right, sounds good. Because we do have some listeners there, so. Yes, we do. Um, it seems like uh, probably more than a few. Yeah. So. I'll have to check the numbers on that, but I All think right. there are. So Russia, uh, Russian-speaking people, um, you know, we'll be saying hello to you next week in your language. Apparently there are over 10 million people who speak Russian in the world. Or, well, no, I'm sorry, I have that number wrong. I'll, I'll find out by next week what that number is. Well, whatever that number is, add a one to it, because I'm going to be, like, among those that can say hello at least. Okay. <laughs> All right. I have confidence that I will succeed. All right. So, um... Yeah, so we were talking about how Darcy is into a lot of different things, and, uh, you know, it seems like, uh, um, you know, cryptocurrency is an interesting topic, for sure. Uh, I don't know that if, um, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners actually own cryptocurrency or know about it, so it'll be a good uh, introduction for people, for sure. Exactly. And, and I, I feel like there's a curiosity, whether you own any or, or ever even plan to own any. Maybe you don't, but like, you know, I don't own any, but um, I'm still curious about it. So for that reason, you know, I think it's really interesting. And also I want to say about Darcy, like, it kind of reminds me of us with the podcast. You know, we, we tell backstories, uh, much like he does documentaries, but... Um, you know, he has a wide range of topics, and that was something that was very important to us when 
we started getting into uh, the direction that we wanted backstory to go is that we didn't want it to be the same topic every week. So, you know, yeah. I, I think we're similar in that way. Well, you know, they say variety is the spice of life. So uh, we've certainly uh, talked about a variety of topics. And, uh, you know, each season we try and do the same. Yeah, um, I mean, wasn't the Spice Girls, like, you know, like, they had, like, <laughs> Spice, you know. <clears throat> they, they weren't really. There was what a bunch of them. Huh? What was their names, like? I don't know, Scary. Baby Spice. Was sleepy. That one? I, don't, I don't know. Well, it is. I mean, you know, they were the Spice Alive for several years. They are quite popular. Yeah, for sure. And then one of them married David Beckham, and that was pretty much the end of it. Well, you know, I mean, it's the end of one thing and the beginning of another. (laughs) They're living here in the U.S., and uh, by all accounts, they seem happy. All right. Well, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) How's that person spy? Yeah, sure, sure. Sounds good. All right, well, let's get into this episode and uh, learn about cryptocurrency and see what's happening there. All right, and our special guest once again is Darcy Weir. And today our guest is Darcy Weir. Darcy, we are so excited to have you as a guest and talk about your new documentary. So I want to welcome you to Backstory Sessions. Hey, thanks for having me, Kathy, and uh, nice to speak with you today. So your new documentary, The Bitcoin Field Guide, we're going to talk about that in a lot of detail. Uh, It's very interesting. Um, But first, I guess I'd like to to know, um, how did you begin uh, documentaries? What was your initial interest in and going that route versus making, you know, some other type of film. Okay, well, um, I was a student of film, I guess my whole life, but um, I really went after it post high school. I, I did a university degree in film and sociology to study the theory. I did a technical diploma at Trebist Institute, which is like a film and video production um, college, and got a technical diploma on, you know, editing and filming and all that type of stuff. Um, And, you know, when when you're in university, um, when a university professor might be a little bit lazy, they can throw on a documentary especially in sociology, it seems like sociology is a documentary-centric core study in universities, uh, just because a lot of sociologists will study the patterns of people and uh, the patterns, the social patterns of uh, humans, and they'll make a film out of it most of the time. Uh, Noam Chomsky, you know, that type of stuff. 
So I, I fell in love with documentaries in university. And then I went to work after I graduated and I worked on film sets and uh, like TV and commercial sets. And I saw how all that worked and how to work with, you know, talent. And um, there was some aspects of working on reality television that kind of gave a bit of inspiration for me to do documentary stuff. Mainly that you have to be personable, you have to be approachable, you have to be somebody that people feel comfortable talking to uh, on and, you know, uh, getting set up in front of a camera and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I always, I kind of was getting the ingredients uh, for my own filmmaking in the earlier days of my adult youth. And then um, I worked in IT actually for like eight years. That was my mainstay. My salary was, was mainly from that type of occupation. And I would, on the weekends or after work, um, in 2012, I was working on this original documentary that was a little bit far out there. It was about this guy named Phil Schneider who uh, would go around to conferences in the early 90s and say that he was in a battle with aliens when he was building an underground base <laughs> in uh, the United States. And... Um, he said that in the battle he lost his fingers and was shot by some energy weapon and he survived to tell the, the tale and he got really popular uh, in sort of the conspiracy world and I was like that guy has a fascinating story so I reached out to his family he was dead at this point and um, I started building my first documentary in 2012 um, I released that on YouTube and it got like millions of views uh, and then I knew, okay, I can do this. Um, it was a feature length documentary. Um, but I wasn't making any money off of that. It was just sort of out of passion and interest hobby. And, um, eventually I got interested in a documentary that I wanted to do about Bigfoot, believe it or not. Um, living in British Columbia, which is the west coast of Canada, you know, just north of Seattle. Um, the story there is that there's this creature called the Sasquatch. And that hey. is the, yeah, that's like the interchangeable name for Bigfoot. And there's a city, a little town actually called Harrison Hot Springs, about an hour and a half north, two hours, depending on traffic, from Vancouver. British Columbia where I was living and I went up one weekend there there was a festival and there was these guys that were um, very keen and uh, very studious um, educated men on the lore and the story of basically Bigfoot sightings in Canada so I sat down with them with the camera and I shot some really good 
interviews and I said, I'm going to make a documentary out of this. So I made a documentary. I submitted it to film festivals. That was the first time I did like the film fest uh, circuit in 2016 at this point. It got accepted um, at the Monrovia Action on Film Festival. Um, I went, I met my first distributor there, uh, Indie Rights, and they took the film. Uh, the film did really well on places like Amazon and, um, you know, all these AVOD platforms. Um, and then I said, whoa, I can like really do this documentary stuff. And the whole time I was making that documentary, um, I kind of alluded to before I was working nine to five and let's say it was a Friday, my friends would say to me, Hey, you're going to come for a beer, you know, after work or whatever. And I'd be like, I got to hop in my car and go interview this Bigfoot hunter. (laughs) And they'd be like, what? (laughs) Uh, okay enjoy enjoy that good luck buddy uh and you know because i didn't care what people thought i went and just pursued my own interests i ended up making that documentary and uh it evolved to soon releasing over 10 feature length uh documentaries and the bitcoin field guide um, is the latest in, in that, you know, that passion. And so in these earlier documentaries, um, you know, about Bigfoot and such, the, the man getting his fingers and all that, um, <laughs> you know, the battle with the aliens. Um, so do you approach that from a neutral perspective uh like believing it could be possible i'm just gonna see where the story leads me as far as evidence or or do you have an idea going into it that you do or do not believe yeah so i'm i'm definitely interested in the ufo subject and the um Bill Schneider documentary. It's called The Underground. Um, that I was, you know, kind of expanding on the lore of the UFO topic. So that that is that there's been a cover-up, an active cover-up, you know, um, around the world, possibly mainly in the United States, about possible visitations to the planet from elsewhere. And um, I am curious about that subject. I am constantly researching it. And I I think there is something there to that sort of uh, thesis. But with the Phil Schneider story, um, I mean, the first time I had heard the guy speak, he speaks with such um, conviction that you want to believe him, you know? And, and the interesting thing about his story is that so many people out there still actually believe every word the guy said. And that's kind of bad. I mean, it's, you can't believe everything, right, uh, that's out there in the UFO sort of sure. arena of theory. It's, some of it's 
quite ridiculous. But um, it's an interesting story. And that, as a documentary, like a documentary filmmaker, I wanted to follow an interesting story. And I got to speak with his family and see how he lived and what he did for work and all that type of stuff. And I just got the backstory on him. And in the doc, the like documentary got released and published to, you know, platforms in 2020 as a director's cut. And uh, we say, say in it, like not everything Phil Schneider said is true, but he's, you know, he, the really interesting thing about him though, is that what, what he did was he built this massive grassroots following that has evolved today. I mean, UFO conferences are still happening all around the world. And it's really, I feel like those roots became so strong in the early nineties when this man was touring because he was one of these few people that was going out there and telling these incredible stories that motivated people to want to come and see him speak and, and other people like him. And so it's, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I don't believe everything and I am skeptical about a lot of the stuff in the UFO arena of theories. Um, but, I, I make my films entertaining and that's an important thing too. I want people to be engaged with the ideas um, so that, you know, they understand even as somebody, as an outsider, let's say yourselves that haven't really seen a UFO documentary before, if they watch one of mine, they get what, what this thesis, what this idea is coming out of the UFO community. So with um, Bigfoot, like, for instance, Trailer Park Boys, um, you know, that's <laughs> the end show, but um, Bubbles, you know, uh, like, <laughs> they were chasing um, Sasquatch. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, if, if I were to be interviewing about that, I, I'd be looking at it, you know, from a humor perspective. Um, would it... Is it ever hard, like, when you're interviewing people that have these experiences, like, do you ever, like, find yourself, like, you know, laughing because it seems so unbelievable? Or are you just able to, like, take it all in open-mindedly? And Well, yeah, I mean, I try to interview people that are not outlandish. Um there are some documentaries I've seen presented on these subjects where I would literally be laughing um, yeah. if I had, you know, been talking to this person about these things. And if, if I was the documentarian work, but um, for the Bigfoot documentaries that I made, I made two of them. Um, I mainly interviewed like the main subject for both documentaries was this Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, who's one of the heads of anthropology out at Idaho State University. Um, and, you know, 
his story is so convincing because he got involved with researching Bigfoot sightings around North America uh, because of his predecessor, this guy named Grover Kranz. He was um, the head of anthropology at um, Washington State University in, you know, just Seattle area. And um, Grover Kranz collected over 300 foot casts of different specimen that were left after sightings from across North America. And um, when Grover passed, the, they were friends, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum and him. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum collected all of those foot casts and now has them at Idaho State. So I got to see these different foot casts and it looks, literally, it doesn't look like somebody slapped on, you know, a big fake foot and started stomping their feet around in the mud. It looks <laughs> like, it looks like there's pathology, you know, present in the print. It looks like there's bone and skin, you know, um, when you look at your fingers on the edge of your fingers, you see those little lines. Uh, those are called dermal ridges. And it's what makes up your foot, your fingerprints when police ink blot and, and take your prints if you ever get arrested, right? <laughs> um, well, dermal ridges are present all over your feet, especially on your toes and stuff. And the foot cast that I saw when I was at Dr. Meldrum's Idaho State lab in, in his university are like many of them have presence of dermal ridges, meaning like it doesn't look like a hoax. It looks like a real massive foot from some kind of, you know, animal that has 18 inch feet. That's the, I mean, people, and then people say that it came from something covered in hair from head to toe and had, was massive. And, you know, the, the story goes. So when I, I actually am convinced that there were at, at one time, possibly what, what you would call like relic hominids. So um, a good example of a relic hominid is a Neanderthal, right? That's uh, basically we have Neanderthal D DNA inside of us. We know that they mated with um, Homo sapiens, which, which is the newest incarnation of a hominid on the planet. That's us, right? Mm. And before the Neanderthal, there were other ape-like men that were all across Europe, all across Asia, into Russia. Um, and if you believe the stories, there could be some of those relic hominids that existed in North America um, alongside the indigenous people here. And so maybe the theory is that Australopithecus or Gigantopithecus, which are these relic hominids from uh, the last that we found remains of, say, 
a uh, Gigantopithecus were in Asia, and they were supposed to be carbon dated to around 200,000 years old. Um, but we found sort of other hominids that looked kind of like that in, in form and cranial structure and all that stuff and anatomy that showed up within 20,000 years ago. And as you may know, um, we have been walking this planet since 200,000, maybe 250,000 years ago is when Homo sapien remains have been carbon dated to. So that means at one time, for sure, there were these other massive ape-like ape men or you know, creatures walking the planet at the exact same time that we we existed um and i guess the kind of theory in my documentaries is that maybe a scarce population of them did not cease to exist and they live in deep wilderness and sometimes we come across them um so the first documentary i did on that was called the unwanted sasquatch and um the second one is called Sasquatch Among Wild Men, and that one is more an international expose on the theory because uh, in Russia and China and all these other countries, they have the same sightings that happen um, and the same interactions and footprints and stuff that are left. You know, like literally Chinese people doing plaster casts in their mountain um, areas, kind of like what we have in British Columbia or Northern California, Washington State, Oregon, that same sort of pattern has been happening in other co countries around the world throughout history. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, I, I actually took those documentaries seriously because I, I was trying to present uh, an interesting theory that like maybe, you know, some of these creatures are related to relic hominids. So do you, uh, after the documentaries, um, does your mind change? Do you come to some kind of conclusion? Well, yeah, I mean, before I go into the documentary, I keep my mind open. I want to get all the data that's possible to present on the idea. And then after the documentary, yeah, I mean, I've got some clues as to whether it could be true or could be not. Um, but, you know, that that's one of the biggest, the biggest, cryptids in the world is is a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. You know, it's like, how many movies have you seen, fictional or nonfiction, that have been produced about that? It's massive. And there's got to sure. be a reason. Maybe somebody actually saw something. You know? Um, otherwise, it's... it's I don't know. It, it can't be that foolish... Um, if, if there's that much smoke, there has to be fire at the end, you know? 
Yeah, it's kind of like finding a, uh, you know, sort of like a lost tribe in, you know, Mexico or something. Pretty much. Or the Amazon, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so these, um, you know, topics that you've covered, um, it seems quite interesting then that you now have the documentary um, about Bitcoin. So um, what was it about this topic that made you interested in a documentary? Well, um my friend in 2016 had told me about this Bitcoin cryptocurrency and he had said, Hey, I'm thinking of buying one for around $1,500. Should I do it? And I said to him, absolutely not. That's a bad idea. Um, he did not follow my advice and he bought some and it did its meteoric sort of rise to $19,000 at the end of 2017. Um, and um, a lot of people learned about Bitcoin and crypto in 2017. Uh, we're hearing about it all over the news and wondering why is this thing being worth so much? And I got interested in that. And followed my friend's journey a little bit. Have you seen the documentary? Yes, actually. We, we both have watched it. Um, so Brian is the sort of crypto hippie in it, the guy with the long hair living in Montreal. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, he's the guy that I, you know, interview in that. And he's my he was the guy that introduced me to Bitcoin in 2016. Um and I was working in IT, as I told you, uh, through working in IT in Vancouver, I met um, a really interesting individual that left the company that I had been working at with him and started a company called First Coin Capital. And their whole um, job was to create crypto currency coins for businesses, governments, like they're essentially building the blockchain uh, technology and creating the coins uh, for enterprises as well as uh, government sort of organizations. And um, I found that interesting. I spoke to him and I interviewed him in the documentary, Bear Kai, and then his partner, bronze um and they introduced me to other um cryptocurrency business you know industry individuals and i started to realize that this wasn't just like some kind of fad like buying pogs and playing with them you know this was <laughs> a real technology that's spreading around the world crypto and blockchain technology and that it was going to be the next sort of evolution of the internet, right? Like we've lived through internet 1.0 is what a lot of these crypto enthusiasts say. Hmm. Um, and that started back in the dot-com era, 1990, late 1990s through the 
the bubble crash in 2000 until now. And now we're getting into what's called blockchain smart contract networks where they're going to build out the new smart internet of things and they're going to build out the meta universes that people can connect to and play online or do commerce in and um, and it's fascinating because we're really at the precipice of a, a revolution in terms of how we're going to be using blockchain for the future. So I have a few questions. I know Matt's going to have um, many more for you, but um, for the listeners, let's like try to break this down. Like, I don't know if you had like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, you know, 101 for dummies or something <laughs> like that. Because, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people, uh, maybe that is the level right now of their understanding. So um, with a podcast, I hope, you know, that uh, before they watch your documentary, um, they're going to have at least a, a basic understanding. And then, of course, they're going to get a lot more knowledge once they've watched that. So, you know, in the simplest terms, uh, what is cryptocurrency? Cryptocurrency is a new digital currency that is operating on blockchain technology. That's pretty much it. And blockchain oh. technology is a new open ledger. Um, a ledger is something like an accounting system, sort of like uh, Excel, right? If you have an, a big Excel spreadsheet um, that keeps all of the accounting records, well, um, Bitcoin, for example, is a blockchain ledger application. It's a layer one solution and uh, people can transact through the Bitcoin network per person to person without having a bank or an intermediary in between. All you need is a wallet. So if you have a digital wallet, which uh, people can set them up as um, a hardware wallet, something like a ledger device, which is connected to your computer, or you can have a software digital wallet for blockchain. Um, once you have that set up, you can peer-to-peer -peer transfer Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies between each other. Um, and therefore, you're you are your own bank. So how does that differ? Uh, I'm sure like someone would be thinking, uh, they're probably familiar like with the wallet, you know, that you, you can put your movie tickets, your concert tickets, um, you know, credit cards, whatever, into your digital wallet on your phone. Um, but this instant transfer, like, how is that different than, say, PayPal or Venmo or these other ways where you instantly transfer uh, funds from person to person? So Venmo, PayPal, those are just banks. They're, they're online banks. Um, so therefore, they take custody of your money online. 
and they do the transactions for you. When you have a MetaMask wallet, which is something you can download on your phone or connect to your browser like Chrome, um, when you have a MetaMask wallet, which is a software wallet, or you have this ledger device, which is a, a digital hardware wallet, you are your own bank. It's literally going, you're keeping track, you're sending out your money and receiving it, and it's not touching an intermediary. So the intermediaries like Venmo and PayPal, as you may know from using it, you get transaction fees, right? Right. And that's pretty normal. With Bitcoin or these other cryptocurrencies, the transaction fee goes to the network, um, to the actual technology, and um, it's not it's not going into like the pockets of a, a banking company, basically like PayPal or, or Venmo. And the transaction fees for you know in uh, 2018. Somebody transferred a million dollars on the Litecoin network, and the transaction fee was fifty dollars. Wow! Now, if you transferred a million dollars from this bank account to that bank account, or from this PayPal to that PayPal, it sure as heck is not going to be fifty dollars. Exactly. A large transaction fee. So, the the whole key with any innovative technologies is efficiency and value, right? If you look at um, the invention of Zoom, uh, you're offering incredible efficiency of communication via video and voice, and it's free. So the value and the efficiency is there. It's Amazing, right? Everybody started using it during COVID. Sure. If you look at the uh, the energy that it requires to combust gas and run a car, it offers, even though it's expensive right now around the world, um, it's still the most efficient energy source to to run, you know, our automobiles and and propel us around the world. Um, it's super efficient. And so we always gravitate as human beings, especially if there's 8 billion of us and we want to continue to grow as a civilization. We're always looking for technological innovation that offers efficiency and better value. And Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies are offering just that. They're offering... Um, efficiency and value for money, but there's some cryptocurrencies that are offering efficiency and value for problems that are in the economy. You know, for example, in the documentary, we profiled this one called VeChain and their token called VET. It's a altcoin, as they say, not a Bitcoin, so it's an alternative cryptocurrency coin. And this altcoin was built with um, shipping and uh, logistics in mind. And people may not know about this, but 
shipping and logistics are a huge problem in the world. Like the reason why we have inflation that's so high right now is not only because of the money printing that happened during COVID, but it's also because parts and resources are hard to come by. There's a shortage of that stuff. Um, China was shut down for a long time. They manufacture a lot of this stuff. Um, Taiwan was shut down for a certain amount of time. And we get a lot of our goods out of this area of the world, and they need to be shipped. And when they need to be shipped, they need to be put on planes, trains, boats, and, and moved by dredge across the oceans. Um, and every time they hit ports, they need to be scanned, they need to be checked for insurance, they need to be checked for damage, yada, yada, yada. Well, this VeChain VET token um, is a cryptocurrency token that enterprises can use to track and um, get live information on the quality of their goods as they go from point A to point B. And that's a huge problem for um, all kinds of industries like pharmaceuticals, medications, they need sometimes even uh, food. You need to keep it at a certain temperature and companies now can use this B-chain VET token to um, basically they chip the or they um, create a barcode which is connected to the VeChain Thor network and then once they have that on their product they can track it from point A to point B they can see what temperature it's been at they can see if it's gone bad or not they can see you know uh, what time of day it was here or there you know if the insurance is still good everything so it's like all of that information, by the way, is being stored in the blockchain, which is this open ledger, kind of like it's built into the coin Excel type accounting system technology. And uh, that operates with efficiency and offers better value. So let's say that I have in my digital wallet, I have a million um Bitcoin, whatever, dollars. I mean, I don't know what the words to use. Let's just say I have a million that I want to send to Matt. So does Matt have to be in my blockchain? Does he have to have the wallet? Or um, can you just send this to anyone that you choose? Okay, so if you have uh, Bitcoin, no matter how much of it you have, it has to be stored in a Bitcoin wallet um, which will have a, a hash it'll have a wallet address which is a alphanumeric code for that wallet address and once you have that if you have somebody that wants to purchase something off of you or you have a service you want to provide and they want to pay for it um, you can transact by getting their wallet address which is just another hash code and you put that into a program um, like MetaMask or Ledger or you know there's these online exchanges these cloud wallets that you can have through Coinbase or Binance which are 
the two most famous around the world, Crypto.com, you know, FTX, these are other really big ones. As long as you have your, where you're sending to that wallet address, you can send Bitcoin from one wallet address to another wallet address. For each crypto coin, if it's Ethereum, for example, it's not going to be the same wallet address. Ethereum is going to be its own wallet address uh, from person to person. And that, that's the same thing for each altcoin, pretty much. Unless, unless um, the interesting thing about Ethereum is that many of these altcoins are built on the Ethereum network. Therefore, um, some of these altcoins will actually have the same wallet address as your main Ethereum wallet address. All right, Matt. So you see, um, that's how it would happen if I was <laughs> to send you, uh, you know, I, something. I, I just wanted to add that if you had a million Bitcoin, <laughs> I don't think we'd <laughs> be doing a podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, no. You'd if you had a million Bitcoin, you'd probably be living in the Cayman Islands or something like yeah, that. Yeah, some tax haven for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. well, I mean, you never know. We still would be curious and want to like talk to people. So yeah. Sure. All right. So so what do you have, Matt? <laughs> like, you know, so, you're kind of step up, I think. Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about mining. Um, you know, in the in the documentary, uh, you had your friend there who introduced you to Bitcoin. Uh, I believe it's the same guy who was showing his mining rigs that he had in yeah. his apartment. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, is that like a... I don't want to say a normal thing, but people who are into, you know, Bitcoin and crypto and stuff like that are a lot of those people mining their own or is it more? Yeah. Yeah. So pretty much uh, cryptocurrency miners are people that have built these computer systems and are literally, um, minting new portions of Ethereum or these altcoins. There's like Zcash and Monero, all these other cryptocurrencies that you can mine, even Shiba Inu coin, which I did just as an experiment to show in the documentary. Mm -hmm. Um, And essentially what you're doing is your graphics card or your CPU, it's mainly been on graphics cards because for whatever reason GPUs um, graphics processing units that are on your card right um, typically have a better ability to solve complex algorithms and that's probably because they're putting together geometry and color mapping and all kinds of stuff for video games they're they're putting that together on screen for you Mm -hmm. um blockchain is full of algorithms that require that sort of processing um and every time you mint cryptocurrency you're actually like building out the network you're expanding the network 
for these different cryptocurrencies, mm-hmm. um, which then facilitates for people to send, to create wallets, to, you're basically creating the foundation. You're creating the, it's like these people that are using their computers to mint cryptocurrency and, and mine it, um, they're creating the landscape in which future developers and future crypto owners and wallet owners and transactors can build their homes on. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you want to visualize it that way. And, um, and yeah, uh, the, the drawback to that is the energy costs. So for these miners, they're building these, well, the computers are expensive, right? Because you have to have a powerful graphics card. Yeah. You know, uh, you have to run a power supply, which runs that powerful graphics card, and that leads to a certain amount of watts, amps, so on and so forth. So eventually, if you go through these downturns, like we're experiencing right now with the whole economy, really, not just cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. But if you go through these downturns where Bitcoin goes from being very high to low and Ethereum drops too, sometimes these cryptocurrency miners no longer find it to be profitable and they can't keep running their cryptocurrency farms right? because the cost to run them is higher than they're benefiting from in terms of the crypto that's being mined and the crypto is worth less, right? Mm-hmm. So they can't, and what they do when they mint that is it goes into a wallet and then they can either trade it for other cryptocurrencies, which Brian was doing, or you can sell it back into uh, fiat. So for example, if I have Ethereum or one of these altcoins on my Coinbase account, uh, you can connect your PayPal account and when you transfer that to your PayPal account, you're essentially selling it for fiat money, for US dollars or Canadian dollars or whatever. Right. So miners, the only ones that really are making money right now or um, barely making money because Bitcoin is, has dropped quite a bit are the enterprise cryptocurrency mining farms like uh, Riot is one in the United States. Um, in the documentary, we profiled one that's, that operates on green energy in Iceland and Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're called Hive. And essentially, have you ever seen like a server farm? Yes. You know, most company, bigger corporations and stuff have server racks and they have all these computers built into them. Right. Those big enterprises basically have like that kind of setup, a whole warehouse full of these computers mining Bitcoin, and they're usually specialized computers, like they're called ASICs. So you can't install, you know, Windows onto these things. Right. It's literally, they are set up to just spit out Bitcoin algorithm uh, calculations and um, Bitcoin is the one that's worth the most. So those enterprises usually focus on mining Bitcoin. 
Uh, many of them have mined Ethereum in the past, but Ethereum uh, is transferring their method of expanding the network and minting new coins from proof of work, which is the style that you use for Bitcoin, where you actually have to have hardware that's doing the work to mint new Bitcoin. Right. Uh, Ethereum was what Brian was mining in the documentary with his graphics cards. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of enthusiasts at home had been doing that for the past, you know, many years, but they're transferring to proof of um, stake on their new network. It's Ethereum 2.0 or the consensus layer is what they uh, have dubbed their new upgrade to the network. Uh -huh. And essentially what that method is, is you lend, like you have to own or have a certain amount of Ethereum. Maybe you mined it in the past, whatever. Right. Um, and once you have that Ethereum, you lend it to the network. And for lending it to the network, uh, the network then, you know, you're allowing developers to build on top of that, um, their digital applications and so on and so forth. And then you get paid a percentage back in new Ethereum. So it's kind of like a, yeah, it's kind of like um, an interest bearing lending sort of uh, environment. And uh, however they code that, it, it operates in that sort of fashion. Mm. You take your, your Ethereum, you stake it, you put it forward so that people can use it on the network. And then naturally that Ethereum will generate new Ethereum and come back to your wallet. Right. Um, yeah. So I had heard, and I don't know if this is true, that, um, you know, Bitcoin mining and, you know, crypto mining in general has created or had something to do with, like, uh, chip shortages around the world because these computers, obviously, you know, they they have a lot of processing power and things like that. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so, I mean, have did you, did you run across that at all? I mean, when you were... Well... There was mainly a chip shortage because Taiwan and China shut down their factories due to COVID. Right. Um, prior to COVID, when I first started filming this documentary in 2018, graphics cards were plentiful. I actually worked at a game development studio owned by Microsoft called The Coalition, and we were making the game uh, Gears of War 5. Mm -hmm. all throughout 2019 leading up to 2020 and um, and 2018 and so they were buying graphics cards just fine and enthusiasts and whoever were buying graphics cards it's really because of COVID okay. that factories shut down um, but it didn't help I will I will say that when COVID hit and there was a shortage in these cards and Ethereum went up, skyrocketed in value, <laughs> people were saying, 
hey, I'll buy a PC because I'm going to be inside anyways. Right. Can't go outside, so I might as well build a gaming PC. I'll mine Ethereum when I'm not playing a game or doing something productive. You know what I mean? Because you yeah. can just leave it running, like keeping a light on, and that's generating Ethereum for you. So, you know, I had friends that were doing that. I actually was trying that out at one point. Um, yeah, it was. But yeah, I mean, there's a shortage of everything, and there's going to be. Uh, yeah. Probably a shortage of food and such in the future. <laughs> I mean, what was your experience with trying that out? Um, it's a little bit cumbersome, uh, but I come from an IT background, so I'm a bit nerdy. I'm sitting on a computer most of my day and, you know, I edit film and, um, work with computers all the time, build them. I used to build computers for my job nine to five, like desktop and server computers and stuff like that. So... I don't know. It was uh, fun for me. I, I had a good time trying it out. Um, but I think was it what possible? was it possible? Yeah. No, yeah. I could profit. Did you make like for your efforts? Did you were you able to mine of I don't know how so, much or so Ethereum went up. To, I think it was worth about $3,400 per coin at one point. And right now it's like hovering around $1,200 or something, right? And um, when I first started trying it, it was probably mid last, last year. So like June or something of 2021. And... Um, during those months, Ethereum was very high in value, and uh, I would my energy bill would say be 150 bucks, and uh, that would be for like two months, and I would have mined 400 bucks worth of Ethereum. Hmm. So I made a, a little profit, yeah. Um, but now I don't even run the Ethereum miners because energy costs are high and Ethereum is only worth $1,000, right? So it's just like, there's no point. Yeah. So if you were running there, your um, PC with solar, um, it might be more profitable. Absolutely. And I've thought about that, but um, there's two problems with, with that. First of all, you have to have a powerful enough graphics card to mine. Um, and usually those graphics cards have to be desktop graphics cards. Um, and they are you pretty could pricey. Mine on a laptop. You could mine on a laptop. So if it was a laptop and you were plugged into a, a battery backup that was um, connected to solar panels, that could be a way. Um, but like I said, the major, uh, crypto that everybody has been mining for the past few years and making profit off of is Ethereum and they are moving 
from the mining algorithm uh, to creating new Ethereum to proof of stake, meaning a lending sort of. Uh, yeah, method. so you would you would and have to mine quite a bit before you could even get into that part of it, the stake part of it. Yeah, um, but they won't like the rewards are going to go from like whatever they are now to probably 20% of what the output would be. Yeah. So even if you have a super powerful graphics card in like three months from now, when they finally release this upgrade, um, you know, instead of creating in its heyday last year, when I was making maybe 400, I would be like making, I don't know, like I maybe with, all of my computers running at the same time probably be I'm just guessing if it's only like 20% of that yeah. you know it, it might be 80 bucks right. and your power power bill is 150 no thanks right <laughs> yeah the math doesn't quite work out <laughs> yeah so um, what, another story that I heard and I don't know if you have heard these sorts of things um, there is a server farm for mining in New York, uh, up near Ithaca. And okay. it, so they were, they're mining Bitcoin or Ethereum or, you know, one of those, I don't know which, but, um, it's a pretty, pretty big place. And, uh, so they're using water from the lake to cool the servers and, you know, cool down all the computers and stuff because it generates a lot of heat and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they found that, I don't know if you know how big Cayuga Lake is in New York, but it's like 39 miles long and uh, mm -hmm. I think it's like three and a half miles wide at its widest point. Um, the mining operation there raised the temperature of the lake something like two degrees which i mean doesn't sound like a lot but it's pretty significant so i mean yeah it's an environmental thing and then you know you have all the uh you know all the power Do you have a lot of fish in that lake i believe so yeah there's quite a quite a few there um <clears throat> yeah so it's it's heating up the lake I mean, environmental for sure would be a factor there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I can't really like speak to the environment there because I don't really know like what two degrees would do. Would the fish die? Would, yeah, that I don't know uh, either. But I mean, presumably, would, presumably it would. Would deer just go for a nice hot tub? <laughs> I don't know. Presumably it would continue at, you know, some rate. Uh, you know, whether it's two degrees or, you know, then it goes to four or whatever. Um, so there is like an environmental I concern. I wasn't sure if you'd heard that with other server farm places having that kind of issue. My, my view on mining anything is that it causes a change to the environment. So if you're diamond mining, if you're yeah. oil mining, you know, uh, drilling and, and all that, like these gold mining, like gold mining is incredibly 
uh, horrible for the environment. You're sure. ripping up the ground and you're totally destroying it, right? Mm. Um, now, raising the lake by two degrees, I don't know if that's having like a dire impact on wildlife or the people surrounding it, yeah. but it's a change. And it should be something that we monitor and see if it's, it's dangerous. I do find that there are a lot of anti-crypto news trends that have been going on over the past, like, three years that try and smear crypto as this evil and, you know, anti-environmental. And it's a lot of it's actually bullcrap in right. my opinion because we're still running our cities and stuff on fossil fuels or boiling water with atomic energy which which is way way more dangerous yeah. than you know the actual technology side of things of somebody running an algorithm that's creating this new crypto technology you know it, it's like I don't know. I mean, you're always going to have people that are for or against new technologies, right? Right. And um, to me, I haven't, I've read the literature on how bad it is for the environment for all the other things that we do in terms of mining. But when people try and say that crypto mining is super bad, I, I don't the argument kind of falls apart. Like it doesn't really, there's not enough data to prove right. that. It's just a, it's just a smear campaign. So you think, so I think in your, in your documentary, you touched on that a little bit about how, you know, it is being vilified by certain groups, uh, mainly the, you know, the traditional banking industry, um, you know, some investors like Warren Buffett, I think, was one of them who was saying that. Oh, they hate it. Yeah. They absolutely hate it. It challenges their whole paradigm in which their their businesses have thrived on for many, many, many years now, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Buffets of the world get all of their money and their, their power from the banking system, which are their, their buddies. Right, Goldman yeah. Sachs and Bear Stearns and all those guys. But I mean, Bear Stearns is pretty much gone, but uh, it's gone now. But I'm just saying, like these are yeah. the Bitcoin. You know, if you look at the history of when it was invented, it was designed in 2000, starting in 2008 and released in 2009 by. A small group of developers, one of one of which people speculate was Hal Finney, mm -hmm. who was a brilliant developer uh, that had a terminal illness and passed away, and therefore there is no overarching ruler that controls Bitcoin because they passed away, right. and that makes it a true democratically run currency, whereas the U.S. dollar, the British pound, the uh, Chinese yuan, all these different fiat currencies, which are supposed to be backed by the 
potential value of a country and their their uh, GDP and stuff. Right. That's uh, a coin that can be heavily manipulated by the powers that create it. It can be printed into into infinity. It's not the value is like a construct of our minds. It's not something that truly is is scarce or valuable, you know? Right. And Bitcoin, there's only ever going to be 18 million of them in circulation. And um, therefore, supply and demand drives the value of it up. If there's, you know, more and more people that are switching on and saying, hey, I'd rather own a Bitcoin instead of gold or silver, which I have to carry around, or uh, the U.S. dollar, which is depreciating because they printed it into oblivion. Right. Well, when they buy Bitcoin, the value goes up because there's only a limited, there's a finite amount of it. So a lot of uh, what is run there is the scarcity of the asset and supply and demand. All right, and there's going to be less and less of it over time because uh, people lose their wallet passwords. And, I mean, yes, they do. <laughs> you talked about that a little bit too. Some of the people who, you know, there's a guy. Yeah, there was. Go ahead. There was supposed to only ever be 21 million, and about three million have been lost because the early adopters. Uh, who bought into it, had wallets, digital wallets, like I was talking about right. earlier in your show, uh, in which they they passed away and they didn't share the wallet address and password with their loved ones. So I think that's actually, um, that's an area of improvement, right? And I'm, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a company or a technology that eventually comes out that is able to back up that information for the users so that, you know, uh, loved ones can take custody or if you lose the wallet or lose the password, there's some way of resurrecting, you know, and getting into that and getting the assets out. So, um, yeah, there, there you go. New, new business new idea. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so, I think, I mean, I got the impression from your documentary, especially towards the end, that, I mean, this is a, I mean, it's an emerging sort of thing. Um, technology. And, yes, emerging, emerging technology. And uh, it's going to be, I mean, it, it's coming whether you want it or not. Is that, would you say that's true? Yeah, I mean... Meta, the Meta Universe, is something that's coming, and Facebook just changed their name to Meta. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg Berg has done uh, speeches where he basically says, in the future, uh, there's going to be businesses and people connecting to this online environment, this virtual online environment, in which they literally will go to work there, and they will go to live there, kind of, so to speak, um, and th there's going to be a new digital economy that's basically run through this new 
online world, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, a lot of meta and a lot of um, decentralized finance and non-fungible tokens and all of this innovation is happening on blockchain development. Um, it's not happening on traditional internet 1.0 technology. A lot of innovation is happening on Ethereum and these other crypto blockchain networks that compete with Ethereum. And uh, look, Facebook, you know, we kind of showed it at the starting of the documentary. They were they were being summoned to um, congressional hearings. hearings. Yeah. Congressional hearings to talk about their plans. Because look at it this way. The banks, each one of you uh, out there in the United States, Canada, whatever, if you're a uh, client of a bank, they take your money, they hold your money, they do all kinds of stuff with your money that you're not really, you don't really know. They leverage that money and they borrow and lend and right. uh, invest and all that stuff. And they charge you at the same time. And at the end of the year, if you add up all of the fees or using that bank per user, they're making around 1200 to 1500 per person. Mm. And they have millions of users, right? So the banks make a lot of money per user. Right now, a network like Facebook makes around, I don't know, 50 bucks on average, maybe less per user, but they have billions. And when the banks found out they were going to launch their own crypto banking system, right. that infuriated them because <laughs> then they're not making 1500 to $1,200 per person. Guess who is? Yeah. Facebook. And Facebook gave up on that. They gave up on their Libra coin, which they were going to... Uh, launch at yep. one point yep. they gave up on the the wallet that they created which is called novi n-o-v-i you can look this up they were developing that but they realized the congress which is essentially um the guards of the banking institutions was not going to let it through because the banks want to rule your money they don't want facebook to and so they gave up on that and they pivoted to Meta, right? Which is this like virtual world network that they're gonna be building on. And eventually, I think the laws will, will go in favor of blockchain and Bitcoin and all these other cryptocurrencies. Um, I think there'll be more oversight and more regulation, but eventually it will happen mm -hmm. and it will become more mainstream uh, more people will be using cryptocurrencies or blockchain technologies and won't even know it. It'll just be baked into the technologies that we use on our phones and everything in the future. Right. But eventually, Facebook will have their day. They'll have the meta concept where you can, you know, have your avatar and work and game and uh, communicate online with people. Mm-hmm. But eventually, they probably will launch that cryptocurrency 
uh, network when Congress and everybody else has said, okay, let them let the innovation uh, come back and let the bank don't let the banks rule over that, you know? Yeah. So do you see this as like a, you know, like what kind of timeline? Is it like a 10 year, 20 year kind of thing? Or do you think it will be longer? Um, you know, yeah, if you I, knew that. <laughs> if I knew that, I would be, you know, probably a way wealthier man. Uh, but, and I'm not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, my prediction is that the U.S. dollar is going to be headed for some troubled waters in the next, like, year. Yeah. Just given what's going on in this sort of macro environment around the world, you know, you've got, um, I don't want to get, like, too political, but, and, and you already warned me earlier that that's touchy <laughs> on the ship. But I, I just want to say that, like, you guys do have elections coming up. Yeah. And um, on top of that, this turmoil in Eastern Europe and China backing um, Russia recently. And if China wants to annex Taiwan like they did to Hong Kong last year, uh, that's going to be bad. Right. And um, China released their own CBDC, uh, Central Bank Digital Currency. So they're already ahead of the game in terms of crypto. Mm-hmm. And the United States is trying to figure that out. It probably will be Circle's USDC that they go with because it is backed one-to-one to the American dollar right. and collateral. But um, this, this area um, is where we'll see things grow, and I think we'll see currencies die off because it was an experiment that we only embarked upon since the 1970s it's run its course we've played with it we've destroyed them you know like we've we've printed it into oblivion and we're now trying to save the US dollar by raising interest rates right Mm -hmm. and the problem is with that is that small businesses, medium-sized businesses, even large businesses, corporations, live on cheap credit. Right. It's not. It's not only you and I that re- that like cheap credit because we can buy a home for a lower mortgage rate. We can borrow a car for a lower interest rate. But the corporations and the small businesses and medium-sized businesses, they rely on cheap credit as well to expand their business and therefore hire more people. Mm -hmm. If you start raising interest rates, you're essentially shutting down growth. And that's why, you know, in the documentary, we started talking about stagflation, which is this unique environment in which you see companies laying off people and people don't are having a hard time getting a job and at the same time food gas and goods are really expensive right so you're stuck between 
things costing a lot and not having money because you can't find work. Right. And it's really bad. It's bad for the yeah. world because usually out of situations like this, um, incompetent leaders end up making emotional decisions that lead us to war and worse economic situations. So my hope is that this cryptocurrency industry gets us out of the fiat era and gets us into this future of, you know, more balance, uh, you know, more transparency and uh, better technology that's more efficient and better value. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you have an asset that you know cannot be inflated anymore, there's a fixed amount of that asset, then it's a depreciate, uh, it's a deflationary asset mm -hmm. instead of an inflationary asset. And a fiat currency is a inflationary asset. Well, that's really, I mean, all that is pretty interesting how it's all kind of tied together. I mean, um, you know, how like political situations and, uh, you know, may help move this whole thing along. I mean, I find that. Yeah, I, I find that the SEC and, you know, uh, the IRS and these other government organizations are kind of walking a fine line because they don't want to stifle innovation because they know, hey, wait, this crypto sector is actually making innovation and creating new jobs in the economy. Right. So if we come and stamp that out, meanwhile, we've got... Um, the economy under fire from inflation and we've got to get control over that well we're going to be like killing the economy in two ways we're stamping out innovation at the same time as stamping out inflation right. which I think like inevitably they're going to have to stop raising interest rates and they're going to have to let the dollar just depreciate yeah. They're going to get to a point where they realize there's no saving it. They're just, especially if more countries internationally, like Russia, decide to stop taking U.S. dollars. Right. I mean, we sanctioned them and said, hey, um, we're not going to buy your oil, maybe. And... Um, <laughs> We're, we're going to stop allowing you to have access to the U.S. dollar for your goods and services, right? right? We did that to them. But there's no, there's no saying that they weren't already deciding to do that, you know? Yeah. And that they, they, they already weren't – Russia wasn't already thinking they're going to try and do that anyways. Let's just – go our own way and join the digital yuan with uh, China. Right. Because they're a stronger economy anyway. So, 
you may, I mean, the U.S. dollar always, I think, will always still be used. It's still one of the, it's the strongest fiat currency out of a basket of fiat currencies. Right. But I think after they do this little operation where they're trying to protect the dollar, they're going to maybe realize it's a futile attempt and they're going to let it deflate. Hmm. And, and be less valuable and they might, you know, you never know the federal reserve or there's some pretty intelligent people there. They might end up launching their own cryptocurrency eventually that is scarce, that is finite and may compete with something like Bitcoin. But, um, Bitcoin has first to market advantage. You've got Elon Musk, you've got, uh, the Winklevoss twins, you've got um, (laughs) the nation of El Salvador and, you know, nation states and countries starting to look at, hey, maybe we should just use Bitcoin. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Uh, This is all pretty, really fascinating. Um, And there is a learning curve involved with getting involved in investing in Bitcoin and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the best way to approach that? I mean, is that, you know, like somebody going to need a four-year degree or is this like a... No. <laughs> like look on YouTube I mean, kind of thing or... I think I'm I'm extremely grateful for getting involved with crypto because it's educated me a bit better on... By looking at crypto, I've been able to look at... Um, finance like I've never looked at before in my life and look at the way the economy works and the way currency works, traditional currency. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really opened my mind. And I think people should go down the same road and uh, learn about all this stuff. Um, because there's technology behind it. It's not just as boring accounting and banking sort of premise. Right. Um, there's, there's actually like this digital world that's behind all of it. Uh, there's a lot of resources online. I mean, um, you can just go on YouTube and you could start there and look at, I mean, Bit, BitBoy Crypto, uh, Ben Armstrong is featured in the documentary. He was one of the major guys that I interviewed. Right. And, uh, you know, he has a massive YouTube channel that has over one point, I don't know, two million subscribers. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sort of educates every day in every podcast. They're kind of explaining how Bitcoin works or how what, what the trajectory might be, what's happening in the government, what's happening in terms of worldwide uh, macro events that's affecting it. And you know, just subscribe to guys like that. It'll it'll help you along your way in understanding what's going on because at this point, we're more connected in the world than we ever have been. It's really a, a global village, right? Sure. And, um, and Bitcoin and this sort of new decentralized finance arena is the new banking era and um, people 
need to learn about that because it, they'll be able to protect, I think, their money uh, better. Right. Um, and just have a greater awareness of what's going on in terms of this crypto environment. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's other, you know, I have a um, interest in in studying crypto development, and uh, there's Berkeley University is offering courses, Cambridge University is offering courses, and a, and a uh, you know actual diploma out right. of their courses. So there's a lot of big universities out there in the United States that are hiring industry leaders and development, um, teaching development and stuff in this arena uh, like never before because it's real. It's a incredible new technology that's that's coming. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Kat, what do you think of all this? Uh, well, you know, it's um, it's a lot to consider. Um, <laughs> I, I have learned a lot, like, as we were preparing for this podcast. Um, so I do recommend that everyone uh, watch the Bitcoin Field Guide. Um, I, I guess, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking on the darker side of some of these things, like, um, you know, when you you um lose your your uh recovery um phrase um you know until that business comes into place that we talked about (laughs) um you know that's going to be able to save that for you um you know i guess so the dark side of me is thinking like okay you know if my bitcoin is going to be worth a lot more if um you know, if people forget their phrase or if they pass away and no one else has access to it, you know, what is to like, is there like some kind of uh, underground mafia type group that, you know, is going to go start killing the people that have the Bitcoin so theirs will be increasing more in value? Um, you know, so I, I, I just, I think about things like that. Um <laughs> That's a little dark. Probably the writer <laughs> side of me, but um... but that's 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 like honestly something I've thought about too. Like... Oh, I, I knew it. I knew I wasn't off too far. No, I mean like, look, if you there's it's a dual-edged sword, right? Like if you go to a bank and they're managing your money for you, you pay high costs and you pay for them to take custody and and eventually if something goes wrong with the bank you know you might lose all your money so but there's lesser cases of that but i mean in terms of an economic situation like a depression or stagflation those situations can come up Kathy. like people don't realize because we've lived in sort of an age of prosperity uh, economically in the United States for a long time and, and Canada and places like that, you know, since the 1920s. So people have like this amnesia of bad economic event, events. But we could live through something like that if things get worse around the world um, that will affect 
our situation here because we're connected, right? right. Um, but if you are your own bank, the other side of the coin is that somebody could hold a gun to your head and say, unlock your ledger device or open your digital wallet and transfer your Bitcoin to my wallet address. You know? Yeah. So if you are your own bank, you better have some at-home security as well to protect theft of your own assets, right? And that's why in the United States, there's um, gun problems. I mean, people are paranoid. They, they want to keep their own goods. They want to protect their own home uh, from somebody who might want to do something like that to them, right? right. Um, but, but if you are your own bank, you can lose your asset, like you said, or you could be robbed of your own asset because you're, you're just one throat, throat to, to uh, throttle, right? right? Whereas if somebody wants to rob a bank. Right. You're, you are the bank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that is uh, that's the thing. But I mean, here's the thing, right? Like, as, as soon as there's, let's talk about digital rights management and like mu the music industry. That has completely changed over the past twenty years. Um, we went from buying CDs and records and cassettes to listen to <laughs> yeah to listen to a song um and now everything is digital rights management happens through itunes or spotify and people stream the music for a certain amount every month or they buy it and download it to their personal library and they keep it on their devices right right um those companies, Spotify and Apple, have made it easier. They've built these platforms in which people can come to and um, they can access and collect and, and manage their, that content better than ever, right? And it also keeps the artists and the creators happy because at least they're still making money. When Napster first came out and all these different uh, torrent, uh, illegal yeah. downloading sort of technologies, that scared the heck out of the content creators because they were like, well, am I going to be able to put food on the table if, in the future if everybody's just stealing my stuff that I've worked on? Right. Right. My thing is that right now we're living like the crypto wild west where there's a few players in the industry. There's like uh, <coughs> Coinbase, there's FTX, there's Crypto.com, there's Binance. These are like these new titans of the crypto uh, exchanges, right? I think that NFT non-fungible tokens, which are kind of like an evolution of <laughs> digital rights management. Um, NFT is essentially a content creator 
uses this blockchain technology and they're able to encode the creation date, their name as the creator, and you know, all that ownership and stuff is embedded into the actual image or the video or the song, whatever, right? Um, so non-fungible tokens are the new evolution in, in digital rights management. And I think that if you see these platforms that are out there that are already serving up millions and billions of users, as they get into this crypto market or this non-fungible token and meta universe market, um, they're going to make it easier to access and more reliable to protect. And then we're not going to have to be our own bank. We're still going to kind of have this centralized um, marketplace. It won't be as wild west, but it'll still be better technology and you'll still be using crypto. Well, it's definitely a fascinating topic and I feel like that, um, you know, having you as a guest today um, is a good way for people to um, get more information and then be better prepared to watch the Bitcoin field guide. And you've given some resources that people can follow up on even after that. But, um, you know, I'm sure you will address this topic again because your mind is so inquisitive. And I hope that always is the case because uh, it's fascinating to um, hear the work that you've done. Um, we generally end our podcast with, um, a question. We started this at the end of last season. So um, Matt and I both have a question uh, that we think of and the guest gets to choose to answer Matt's question or Kat's question. And the questions often will not relate to anything in the podcast. So um, we will offer you that opportunity. Would you like Matt's question or Kat's question? Um, whatever you, you decide. Oh, it. wow, Matt, we haven't had that yet. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, since, you know, you love to ask these questions, I will, I will defer to you. You're going to relinquish to me. Oh yes, my goodness. I am. Okay. Um, Darcy, here we go. Uh, cause I, I have like three questions. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Do you want one, two, or three? Uh, two. All right. So question number two. If you could live, relive 60 seconds, any 60 seconds of your life, every day for the rest of your life, what 60 seconds would you choose? Hmm. Seconds every day of my life. Yes. Um. Hmm. I don't know. An orgasm, something <laughs> like that, like <laughs> an extremely pleasurable moment, probably <laughs> physical and mentally. I don't know. Yeah, something where 
I felt um, satisfaction. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that sounds like uh, <laughs> you know, like a lot of satisfaction. In that so, um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so every day at, you know, whatever appointed time, you would get to relive that. Um, I, I, I'm so generally, I would ask, and I guess this would be no different, like, um, you know, would you choose, like, so many seconds, like, prior to that orgasm moment, or, um, you know, would it just be the full 60 seconds of that yeah, I think it would be the full sequence. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Usually the the lead up, uh, you know, to the climax and the after effect is just a, a great, pleasurable moment. Why not? All right. So yeah, well, we haven't had that answer yet. We have not. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh man, am I joking yeah. or am I? <laughs> I think you're serious, actually. So, um, you know, I wish it were po uh, possible for that to happen. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe in the future. Because um, who would have thought all these things with cryptocurrency and uh, other topics we've talked about uh, would be mm -hmm. the case. So, you know, don't give up on that dream yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try not to. So, business uh... idea. Is the documentary out yet, or is it coming out, or what's the... Yeah, um, it's available on Amazon Prime, uh, 2B TV, iTunes, you know, Apple, okay. um, Google Play, all those sort of platforms, and um, if your listeners are in the United States, uh, 2B TV is free, so they can just go to 2BTV.com, search my name, Darcy Weir. Um, and they'll get a whole catalog of films, and the Bitcoin field guide is, is going to be one of those that shows up. I recommend they watch it. It's pretty fascinating stuff, and uh, he did a great job. Some of the stuff is pretty humorous. Uh, you know, I found myself laughing and, you know, definitely getting into it, like you were saying, you know, audience engagement, that sort of thing. Uh, it was definitely Thanks. there. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I appreciate that. Thanks, Mark. And I hope that you, you know, will keep in touch and uh, let us know what you're, what are you going on to next? Okay, I will. I, I think what, I will, for what sure. Is, what is your uh, next project? I mean, are you working on something currently or? Uh, yeah. I'm working on a documentary about secret space, um, which is a theory that possibly organizations like NASA and other space research uh, and development organizations have been working out there and not telling us all the goods about what's going on around our planet. And uh, that also includes UFO events. So oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it's a historical documentary and 
The next one that will likely come out will be uh, just based in the 1950s and 60s, and it's called Secret Space, UFOs, NASA's First Missions. Hmm. Interesting. I'll be looking for that one because I... I'm pretty interested in space travel and that sort of thing, uh, especially like the old Apollo programs and, you know, Gemini and stuff like that. There's some pretty interesting stuff there. Yeah, those are the first missions. X-15, right. North American's X-15 was the first NASA designation of an astronaut. Then you have uh, Project Mercury and Project Gemini. Those are the first three. Hmm. That's, That's pretty cool. <clears throat> All right. Well, we are going to let you go, but we really appreciate you coming by and talking to us. And uh, hopefully we, you know, didn't sound too unknowledgeable about crypto. <laughs> uh, don't worry. You're you're not alone in that. There's a <laughs> lot of people that don't know anything. So. <laughs> it's a pretty broad uh you know, pretty broad subject, and uh, there's a lot to it, but uh, it is very interesting, and uh, you know, I, I hope that, uh, you know, you find success with the um, documentary, and uh, you know, you can do something more with you know, maybe get into it a little bit further down the road with some of the things that are happening or going, you know, coming up or whatever. I appreciate that. I'll try my best. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being here and uh, being a guest on Backstory Station. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, you can send those to Cat at I write please at outlook.com, or you can write to me at backstorysessions at gmail.com or Matt at level11ventures.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.